Thank you for praying for me, and I would request that you continue to pray <clears throat> as I speak to you this morning. I identify with the Apostle Paul and when he wrote in Second and First Corinthians chapter two and and uh, verse four when he said, "My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit." and of power, and that's, uh, that's my desire uh, as we look into the Word of God this morning. I, I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about this unique faculty that all of us have, uh, which is our mind, which, uh, uh, is, uh, which means that, that we, being we have this unique faculty of the mind that we are created in the image of God. I, uh, I, I preached this message uh, two Sundays ago at Cloverdale Mennonite Church where Keith and Marcia are and uh, I especially um, told them that this message wasn't meant for them it was meant for faith Christian, and I've been intending and thinking about this in relation to us here at Faith Christian, and I hope that's okay with you this morning. And so I'm going to be speaking to you on the, the matter of the renewing of the mind. Uh, the, the text for this message is Romans chapter 12, and uh, uh, the first five verses, and I'm especially focusing on the, the, uh, the middle of verse 2, where it speaks about the renewing of the mind, uh, because that is where the phrase is found in verse 2, where it's, uh, it talks about the renewing of the mind. Uh, Romans 12 is where Paul shifts from the doctrinal section to the practical section of the book of Romans. And so before I look at the text, allow me to give you a brief overview uh, of the, uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans. Uh, you know that in the first eight chapters of Romans, we're given the most extensive and the most exhaustive exposition of the doctrine of our salvation that you have in all of the New Testament. Paul begins to expound on the doctrine of salvation by declaring in Romans 1, uh, 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all them that believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then Paul goes on and does this lengthy expose of the sinfulness of all men in chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. This is the most thorough and the most brutal exposition of the sinfulness of both Gentile and religious Jew that you find also in all of the New Testament. It's like Paul is bringing all men into the courtroom of heaven and indicting them as guilty sinners before a holy God. It's not that all have equally sinned. That's true of us all in here this morning. We haven't all equally sinned, but all are equally sinful, under, and we're under the guilt and the power of sin, as Paul said, tells it 
in chapter 3 and verse 9. Well then, from chapter 3, verse 20, all the way through chapter 5, Paul carefully explains how a sinful man can be made right with God by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is called justification. It's in chapter 6 then, which is the new birth passage of the book of Romans, that we are told how we can be not only set free from the guilt of sin, of past sins, but we can be set free from our inherent sinfulness by being baptized. And it's not speaking of physical baptism here, but it's uh, when we are baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Finally, in chapter 8, Paul concludes his exposition of the doctrine of salvation by explaining how the victorious Christian life can be lived and ends with the cry, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. It's in chapters 9, 10, and 11 then that are considered to be the dispensational section of Romans. It's in this section Paul explains how the Jewish people as a national entity rejected Christ as their Messiah and they rejected the gospel because they thought they could be made right with God by the works and the deeds of the law and thereby rejected the righteousness that is by faith. Therefore, God cut them off. He cast them aside and opened the door of the gospel to us as Gentiles. I, I still don't understand why it took that for him to do that, but that's what uh, uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11 indicate. However, Paul ends this complex section, Romans 9, 10, 11, by declaring that God's rejection of the Jew because of their blindness and unbelief is not total nor is it final. And declares that because of God's mercy, and, and here in the end of chapter 11, Paul highlights, uh, as he does nowhere else, the mercy of God. And so because of God's mercy, he still holds the door of salvation open to the Jews as well as to all peoples of the earth. Please take notice then that Paul, in Romans chapter 11, uh, does, uh, ends this uh, section and begins the, the practical section of Romans with a doxology of praise. Uh, I, I will read that at this time, beginning at verse 33 through 36. You have this doxology of praise, and I do, that, do this because it is not only a fitting conclusion to all that Paul had, had declared before this, but it's also a, a, a fitting introduction and a prelude to the practical section of the book of Romans. So, uh, Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Have you been there? <laughs> you understand that. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things... To whom be glory forever. Amen. 
Well, so that is that uh, um, exalted doctrine, doxology of praise. And so Paul begins the practical section of the, uh, of, of the book of Romans. As I indicated, my text for this morning is the first five verses of Romans chapter 12, and especially I'm focusing on one phrase out of Romans 12 and verse 2. So allow me to read the text at this time, Romans 12, beginning at verse 1 through verse 5. Would you stand with me if you can? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. You may be seated. Now, uh, before and as part of looking at uh, the renewing of the mind, that phrase in verse 2, um, I'm, I, I feel the need to do exposition of verses 1 and 2 so we get the context in which this phrase, the renewing of the mind, is found. I do so because verse 2, as many other scriptures, do not, does not stand alone. It is in a context, so it's important that we, we see the context in which this idea of the renewing of the mind is found. So what we have here is in, in, in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 is a call to, to be fully and totally consecrated to God. Yes, Paul begins the practical section of the book of Romans with an appeal to be fully and totally consecrated to God. He does so by calling on us to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Uh, this radical call, it is a radical call, uh, is given on the basis of all that God is and all that God has done in bringing about our salvation and our redemption from sin as described in the first eight chapters. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 19 and 20, which you're probably familiar with, um, the Holy Spirit calls us to the same kind of radical commitment as he does here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Note Paul is very forceful to, by saying, you are not your own. Meaning your body doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to God. Note Paul is, is very forceful about this. You see, it's not easy as you, uh, you can identify with me as I say that. 
It's not easy to feel that our bodies uh, are not our own because we do feel that our bodies are such a personal, private part of us that re they really do belong to me. And so uh, it's easy for us to say, my body is mine. I can eat what I want to, and I like that. Uh, I have to watch that, however. I can beautify it the way I please. I can dress it the way I want to. I can use it for pleasure. I can abuse it if I please. Because this is a personal, private part of me, and it belongs to me. And nobody can tell me what to do, which is mine, what is mine. But God says here in Romans chapter 12, as, and especially in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 also, he says that your body is not your own. It really belongs to God. So make it totally available to God, Paul says here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, as a living burnt sacrifice. That's verse 1 of chapter 12. To do so is your reasonable service, your logical, what well, the German translates the, the word service here, your logical Gottesdienst. You, some of you understand that. And that, that the Gottesdienst is the word, uh, your reasonable act of worship. So presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice is really an act of worship. It is a logical reasonable act of worship. So think of it in that way. And then we have here in Romans chapter 12, verses, verse, verse 2, two exhortations that are given to us as imperatives. So in essence, in verse 2, Paul follows his appeal to be fully available to God with two ways one's total commitment to God is fleshed out. These two exhortations in verse 2 have the force of a command. One is negative and one is positive. Notice these two imperatives. And the first one is, be not conformed to this world. Notice several things about uh, this, this imperative. The word conformed is an interesting one. It says, be not conformed. To this world. The Greek word for conformed has, has in it the word schematic. If you look at the Greek word, and, and I, I, you, you will see that. I, I can, the Greek word is so difficult to pronounce here that I won't even attempt to do it. But within the Greek word, it's a, it's a big word in Greek, you, you, you can see the word schematic. Uh, and so, in other words, he's saying, do not use the same schematic for your life that the world does. Another word, like it would be the word pattern. Uh, this, is, this is a call to, to live differently. Not just to live differently for different sake, but to live differently because as a redeemed child of God, 
You live by a different set of rules. You, you live by a different schematic, a different pattern for your life. First John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us that the schematic, the schematic, the driving, in other words, the driving motivation, the driving force by, by which the world lives is lust. You know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's, that's the schematic, that's the, the motivation, that's the driving force behind uh, the way the world lives. But the driving motivation out of which we are to live our lives is the love for God. And the glory of God. Because we are not our own. Uh, Greek scholars tell us that the grammatical structure of this phrase, be not conformed, indicates that we should not be outwardly conformed to this world. In other words, we are not only to be inwardly different, we are that, to be that, but we are to be outwardly different because we're inwardly different. Therefore, we should be outwardly different in lifestyle. And so that's the, the, the uh, impact and the import of, uh, of, of that phrase. Now, just the word world yet. You know, it says, be not conformed to this world. Well, the word world, um, the Greek word is aeon, A-I-O-N. Uh, the same word is translated course in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, in times past, you lived according to the course of this world. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, he uses the word world in a sense two times in that phrase. In other words, in time past, you lived according to the course or the aeon of this cosmos. Uh, it's also translated generation in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, when it says, Savior and Paul was preaching to the, uh, in Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, he said, save yourselves from this untoward, and that means evil, generation. And so the word generation is the same word that you have here for world in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. All of this to say that the word world as used here in verse 2 refers to the world system. The fallen culture, it's about as close as you can get to the idea of culture as you have in the New Testament. Uh, so be not conformed to this world system the fallen culture we live in the midst of. In other words, Paul exhorts us here not to outwardly pattern ourselves after the fallen culture in which we live, including its lifestyle and values. Now, I come to the second part of verse 2 in which the, the, uh, the title of my message is taken from the renewing of the mind. And verse 2 says, uh, Romans chapter 12, and he said, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable 
and perfect will of God. Be ye transformed by the renewing of the mind. I would have you note four things about the phrase, be ye transformed. Now, the first three things that I'm going to mention to you is rather technical, but I believe it's important because the first three things have to do with the grammatical structure. I, I hardly know how to explain this because English grammar is not more in my forte, nor is it my first love. And, uh, uh, and being, I didn't, I dropped out of school when I was in the middle of eighth grade because I got sick and I never graduated from high school. In fact, I never graduated from anything. <laughs> you know, you know, I didn't graduate from kindergarten because it didn't have kindergarten back there in, in the 1940s. And, uh, and I, I didn't graduate from the first eight grades because I dropped out in the middle of grade eight. And I didn't graduate from high school because I, I, uh, I didn't take high school. And so you understand that gramma grammar is, is, uh, has been a difficulty for me, but, but I see the importance of grammar here in this phrase. So the, the uh, three things about grammar in this little phrase, be it transformed. Um, in, uh, and so the first one is that Grammatically, this phrase is given in the indicative mood in the pre present perfect tense. I'm sure you're excited about that. Uh, being, being given in the indicative mood causes this to be an imperative. You understand what I mean? The force of a command. And this is not a suggestion. It has the force of a command. It's an imperative. Being given in the present perfect tense means that this transformation is to be an ongoing process in life, not a one-time experience. This transformation, this transformation that takes place as a result of the renewing of the, of the mind is, may I say, a lifelong process. It's still going on in my life at 80 years old. In other words, the, 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 the concept, the idea of this being in uh, present perfect tense and ongoing ex the process uh, would cause this to be, trans could be translated, be being transformed. It's a little bit like uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, is it, where it says, be filled with the Spirit. And there you have the same grammatical structure. Be constantly filled with the Spirit. And so it's here, be constantly transformed, be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice also that uh, be a transformed is also given in the passive mood. I, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but let me explain what I mean by that. It, it simply means that the action is not ours. We're being acted upon. You know, we don't transform ourselves. <laughs> we yield ourselves to, to be transformed, but we don't do the transforming. The action is not ours. The action is, is the Holy Spirit's. Be a transformed. 
Now finally, um, also, uh, thirdly, the Greek scholars tell us that because of the grammatical structure of the phrase, in contrast to the first phrase, be it transformed, it indicates that this dynamic inner transformation that will affect us uh, is an inner transformation that will affect us how we live outwardly. I said that already. But fourthly, the, for the word transformed is an interesting word. Um, the, the Greek word is metamorpho, and you can immediately uh, see that it, it, it is the same word that, in, that we have in English, uh, uh, metamorphosis. And so it is the word we use to describe the dynamic change that takes place when a caterpillar, the lowly caterpillar, is changed into a beautiful butterfly. And it also describes the dynamic change that takes place when a sinful man or woman is born again. But here he's talking about the dynamic change that takes place as a result of the renewing of the mind. And so uh, uh, I, I trust that is meaningful to you as we continue to look. And, and now I will look very specifically at the phrase, the renewing of the mind in verse two. Here, Paul tells us what brings about that inner spiritual metamorphosis. It's the renewing of the mind that brings that inner spiritual metamorphosis that affects us outwardly. I want to explore this matter of a renewed mind and, and, and how and what brings it about with you this morning. Are you interested in this as well? I trust we are. There is so much I want to say about this thing of a renewed mind that I hardly know where to start. You know, the mind is a great matter. I didn't say the brain was, a, was great. It's not that big, it's, it's actually pretty small. But it's, it's, it's an important, a, a very important part of it. It's one of the things, and it's one of the major things that distinguishes us from the animal world uh, because we are created in the, in, in the image of God. It has to do with the mind. Much of it has to do with the mind. First of all, let me begin by exploring with you uh, the question, what is... What constitutes the mind in scripture? Well, uh, I defer to Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words, and this is how it defines the mind. It is the seat of reflective consciousness, comprising the faculties of perception and understanding, of feeling, judging, and understanding. Now that is so precise that it's sort of difficult for us to, to get hold of, of it. 
Uh, Vines goes on and, and breaks it down a bit by saying that the mind is the faculty of knowing and the seat of understanding. Well, here is how Brother Sylvanus defines the mind. Um, would you mind listening to him? You are, whether you are one, two, or not. <laughs> At least for the next 20 minutes. Um, first of all, the, the mind has to do with the intellect, uh, sometimes referred to as our gray matter. <laughs> it's the intellect. In other words, it has to do with our ability to think logically and deductively, to reason and understand. I, I usually... <laughs> I usually remind my students at the beginning of term that they aren't going to hurt themselves by thinking deeply. I haven't seen anybody hurt themselves yet by thinking deeply about something. You see, the reason that is true is because we're created with the capacity to think deeply. Each one of us are. See, you know, the brain, as I've, you've probably heard me say before, the brain is more like a muscle than it is a bone. And it's, so it's meant to be stretched. <laughs> so go ahead and allow it to be stretched. You see, I find that thinking deeply involves a discipline that many of us naturally steer away from. I don't know why that's true. I find that within myself. And so I find it a discipline to think deeply about something. In other words, and so the, the mind has to do with our intellect. Our intellect is the seat of our thoughts and our reasoning ability. Secondly, the mind has to do with our imagination. Uh, you know, the Bible speaks of our imagination, usually in a negative kind of way. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, referring to the sinful propensities of men before the flood, up to the flood, he said, every imagination of the... Uh, Every imagination of man was only evil continually. So sin had permeated their minds and the imagination. And they only used the gift of imagination to see how much they can sin. <laughs> Isn't that tragic? You know, that's true of our world you know, and when you think about it as well. So the imagination is, uh, as, I've, as far as I'm concerned, is a wonderful part of the mind as well as the intellect. You see, it's, it's our imagination. It's because of our, we have the gift of imagination that enables us to dream. And I'm not talking about what you do at nighttime here. You know what, about, what I mean by dreaming? 
uh, let me use the word visualizing. It's not interesting that you can visualize something that doesn't exist. Now, I'm not using the word visualize uh, in, in the, uh, according to the New Age concept of visualization, but I'm, I'm, I'm using the concept of visualization here in, in a good way. You know, my, my father was an expert craftsman. He could do most anything with his hands, create things, make, he, you know, uh, he could, he, way back there before I was born, he, he, he made hickory rockers, he, he, he built furniture, he built houses, he built barns. You know, he, he ended his life by, uh, I, I don't mean that he finished it off, but at, <laughs> toward the end of his life, he, he began to build motorhomes, which was, was a new idea in, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the 60s. He was an expert craftsman. And one of the things I still remember him saying is that, that, uh, if, if that uh, he, said, he said that um, you, you have to be able to visualize the finished product of something before you start. And so that's imagination. That's the gift of imagination. That's able be, being able to see a finished rocking chair before you start making it. It's, that's, that means you, you see the, the finished product of a, of a piece of furniture before you make it. And that's what makes for a good craftsman. Well, and so, it, uh, so yes, that's the, uh, the unique potential and use of one's imagination. It enables you to dream. Uh, and, and I trust that you dream, uh, you young people especially, you dream how God could use your life in the future. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the gift of imagination. Well, uh, furthermore, the, the mind also, thirdly, has to do with the amazing gift of memory. You see, the, the mind, sometimes memories are surfaced by certain circumstances. Uh, this, this past Sunday evening, Edna and I and two nieces of mine went to the old home place where my family lived from before I was born till I was about seven or eight years old, near Clerk Trail, Ohio. And, and uh, we had the, the, because one of my nieces uh, daughters and her husband live there now, rent the place, uh, the house. Uh, they, I had the privilege of going all through the house and, uh, you know, and you can't believe the kind of memories <laughs> that this evoked uh, for me. In fact, I walked into my mom and what used to be my mom and dad's bedroom and I suddenly remembered, I remembered sleeping in a crib and I must have been, uh, I, that memory must go back to when I was about three years old. I suddenly remembered sleeping in the crib that was placed at the bottom end of my mom and dad's bed. And, uh, and so it, it was a dramatic memory for me. 
And as I walked into the upstairs bedroom, and I, I remembered how that I was, tr uh, I began sleeping upstairs with my two brothers, Eli and Andy, in, in one room. And how that, I, I remember, I don't remember what age I was moved up there, uh, but uh, there I was, and, and I remember how that I would wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, and I thought about death because I was introduced to death by attending two funerals, uh, one of my, my uncle and one of my grandfather when I was about five years old. And so I, I, I thought about death. And I, and, I, and I was afraid that before morning came, mom and dad would die. And I'd start crying. And I remember how that my sister Anna, from another bedroom across the way, would hear me cry and would come and comfort me. Memory. That's a... That's a I don't have to tell you that uh, whether, you know, pleasant or painful, Memories are stored and, and can be retrieved at will, and they, can, they do affect us deeply in our lives. So memory. Another integral part of our mind has to do with our conscience. An integral part of the mind is, uh, the, uh, it's an integral part of our moral constitution. Uh, it's, it's part of being created in the image of God, our conscience. It's something that the animal world doesn't have. But it, we have it because we're created in the image of God. It's part of the integral uh, part of our mind. Well, when you consider what the mind is and all the mind does, it becomes evident that much of the mystery of what it means to be created in the image of God has to do with the mind. So, so what, does, what does the renewing, let me, let me go back to a different question before I address that one. What does an unrenewed mind look like in scripture? How is it characterized? My reasoning is this, that if there is such a thing as an unrenewed mind, as a renewed mind, there must be such a thing as an unrenewed mind. That's simple reasoning, right? I can handle that. Well, uh, two things I'd like to say about that. The, an unrenewed mind is a mind that has been touched by and has been affected by the, uh, uh, by the natural man. The natural man, sorry. For 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The, the natural man, it says, does not understand the things of God. They're foolishness to him. An unrenewed mind, consequently, is, is a mind that is left in its natural condition. Secondly, Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, refers to the carnal mind and of the uh, possibility of being carnally minded. No, be carnally minded. The, the, the Greek word for carnal is sarks, which is also translated flesh. In, uh, in verses 1, 3, 4, 5, and etc. Referring to our inherent sinfulness. 
So to be carnal or to be carnally minded is to allow our mind to be acted upon and to be controlled by our sinful propensities, our sinful tendencies that are still with us. Do you understand that they're still with us even though we've been born again? Huh? Okay. Um, well, verse 7, Romans chapter 8, tells us that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, which also means it is not subject to the Holy Spirit. That's the carnal mind. It's, it's also obvious in the context of Romans 12, 1 and 2, that the unrenewed mind, in other words, the carnal mind, is in tune with and under the influence of the fallen culture in which we live. My question is this, and especially to Dave and Ivan and Nate, the preachers here. Is it possible, brethren, for one to have a heart that has been transformed by the power of God? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And still retain a carnal mind. And still retain, uh, still have an unrenewed mind. I asked you this question. I, I, would, I would love to have your response after. You see, this, this thing of having a renewed heart and having an unrenewed mind seeks, seems to be an, an oxymoron, uh, you know, a contradiction of some kind. Uh, what, what kind of Christian is that, <laughs> if that is possible? Think about it. Now, I'd like to come to the, 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 the heart of the question I mean, in relation to the mind. And that is, how is the mind renewed? Please note that in Romans 12, too, it doesn't speak of a new mind, but a renewed mind. A renewed mind is a mind that has been refurbished, it has been restored, it has been renovated, or another word would be reconstituted. Mind says this, that the adjustment of the moral, it's the adjustment, the renewed mind is the adjustment of the moral and spiritual vision and thinking to the mind of God, which is designed to have a transforming effect upon our life. I've been reading a book uh, recently in the last month uh, entitled The God-Shaped Brain by Timothy Jennings. Two things I would share with you from, from some of the things that Jennings talks about in his book. And, and one of the things that he says is this, which really caught my attention. He, he talks about the powerful impact that the entertainment industry has had and continues to have on the mind of modern man. The, the subtle thing about this is this, he says, is that it's not only the X-rated entertainment that has a negative impact on the human mind, but also what we consider to be, to consider the good and the better uh, entertaining programs 
are also have a negative impact on, on, the, on, on the mind of a person. And allow me to read a few sections. Um, one of the unheralded factors contributing to the rise of fear and psychiatric disorders is the high prevalence of theatric, theatrical entertainment, including television watching, especially among children. Theatrical entertainment refers to programming designed through pretense or artificial en enactments to cause emotional reactions while, for the most part, disengaging critical thinking. He goes on to say, theatrical programming, which is not to be confused with educational programming, has its primary, as its primary effect to fire the lim limbic system, and he is talking in technical terms here about the brain, um, in the limbic, limbic system while simultaneously diminishing prefrontal cortex ability. I, you know, there again, he's being very technical here. Theatrical entertainment is designed to get an emotional response from the audience. And the more powerful the emotional reaction, the better the programming. Such programs want to get you to laugh or cry or be afraid, aroused, angry, irritated, or frustrated while simultaneously turning off your critical thinking. Well, uh, and so he goes on to talk about this. He says, theatrical programming has a similar impact on most human brains, but children between birth and eight years are particularly vulnerable because the, uh, the massive modification of the neural circuitry, circuitry okay, uh, occurring during these times. Um, sadly, many parents, for many parents, the mainstream media and even church groups have wrongly concluded that this problem is entirely content-driven, content and it's not. Is it any wonder that Bill Gates uh, very strictly controlled his children's uh, use of the cell phone? Because it, it is highly, can be highly used for theatrical entertainment. Think about that. Well, the, the second thing that, uh, that Jennings emphasizes is that the destructive impact that lies and untruth has on the human mind, not only in a moral and spiritual way, but even in the, on the neurological construct of the brain. You know, and, uh, and so uh, he, he's very forceful about this. You see, God gave Adam and Eve a simple, straightforward command, and Satan told them that what God said was not true. He got them to believe a lie. And Satan is still in the business of telling us untruth, that what God said is not to be believed, or at least God's commandments are not important, you know, so, yes, the believing of untruth and a lie has powerful effect upon the human mind. But in, in reverse of that in, uh, in, is the, 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 also the powerful renewing impact of truth that truth has to the mind. 
uh, Jesus said something very significant about truth, and I'm just going to mention it because I'm running out of time. Uh, but he, had, he said some interesting things about truth. In John chapter 17, verse 17, he says, uh, sanctify them through thy truth. Truth sanctifies. Uh, and, and then in that same context, he, uh, he said, uh, thy word is truth. And then in, in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, uh, it, it tells us that, that uh, you shall know the truth. Jesus said it to those Pharisees. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so he's, Jesus is talking about the powerful ability of, of the truth, of the truth of the word of God to, to renew the mind. If I would ask, answer the question, what is it that renews the mind? I would say it's the truth. And so I'm going to finish this message, conclude this message this morning by telling you a story. And it's a story that you've heard before, and that's okay because men 80 years old are allowed to repeat their stories, okay? Uh, but, it, but it's a story about the, the reed basket, and you've, you, I'm sure I've told it here to you before. Let me just uh, tell it to you again, because I'm, I'm trying to communicate the powerful effect that truth has on, on the mind. It is the means, I believe, the, the main means by which the mind is renewed. Of course, there was a missionary to, who went to an ancient tribe of people. And he, and he preached the word of God, preached the gospel, and he translated the, the word of God into the language of the people. And, and uh, after a number of years, there were uh, some of the people in that tribe that, that whose lives were transformed by the power of the gospel, and, and, and they began to read the word of God. And one morning, uh, one of the men from the village came to the missionary and, and, and was troubled. He said, one of the things that happens when I get up in the morning, I will read the word of God. I will read the scriptures that you have translated for us. And he says, but the thing that bothers me that I, I, I leave my hut and I go about my day and then I tend to forget what I've read. Have you been there, done that? You, you forget some of the things that you've read. And so the, the missionary said, there's a reed basket, go down to the river and bring me a basket full of water. And so the man takes the reed basket and goes down to the river, dips it in, fills it up and brings it out and comes back to the men of God. And of course you know that uh, by the time he got there, the, the water had all drained out of the reed basket. Am I suggesting that our minds, our brains are like reed baskets? Well, pretty much so in some ways. <laughs> but, but the idea is this. And so, 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 the, so the missionary said, go do it again. And the man, the, the man the, the, uh, from the tribe went down to the river, filled up the reed basket with water, ran back to the man of God. But by the time he got there, it was all drained out again. And the man said, the man of God said, go do it one more time. 
And so he went down to the river, dipped the reed basket into the water, into the river, and he ran back as fast as he could go to the, to the man of God. And uh, as you know, because it was a reed basket, it had all drained out again. And the man of God looked at the man and looked at the reed basket and he said, do you see a difference in the basket? And the man said, yes, it's cleaner. You see, the, 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 the Bible talks about the washing of the water of the word. Ephesians chapter 5, I believe it's about verse 25 or something. You see, when, when you allow the word to filter through your mind, it has a powerful effect upon the mind. It will renew the mind. It will clean the reed basket. And that's, a, that's an important part of the renewing of the mind. Thank you for staying with me. Um, would you stand with me? Is there anybody that would like to say something or before we close in prayer? Not let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this uh, powerful admonition given to us that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the truth of the word of God. And I pray that each one of us from day to day would allow the truth of the word of God to be filtered through our mind in such a way that it will wash us, it will cleanse the mind, it will renew the mind so that we can prove, as your word says, or approve the word of God, the, the will of God. Bless us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.